this coming May the 6th, the United Kingdom plans to celebrate its first coronation ceremony in almost 70 years. So very few, if any in this room, have ever witnessed a coronation ceremony in their lifetime. According to the announcement from Buckingham Palace, the ceremony will see His Majesty King Charles III crowned. The coronation will reflect the monarch's role today and look towards the future while being rooted in long-standing traditions and pageantry. Queen Elizabeth II was crowned on June the 2nd, 1953. You can find videos online with YouTube, amazing. There was indeed pageantry. And I'm sure there will be great pomp and circumstance coming on May the 6th. It's an, it's an amazing thing when a kingdom marshals its collective energy and resources to mark with pageantry the crowning of a new monarch. And the first chapter of Hebrews tells us of a coronation that is even more impressive times 10 than anything an earthly kingdom can put together. Only faintly anticipate this coronation. The opening scene in Hebrews is the coronation of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became man, lived, suffered, died for sins not his own, rose again in triumph, and 40 days later he ascended. And Hebrews gives us a glimpse into that moment when Jesus returned to heaven with the angels looking on to be crowned Lord of all by his Father on the very throne of heaven. Can you imagine this scene in heaven? I want you to have concrete images here that will help with this text. Around the throne, innumerable angels. They're waiting with joy. And then someone sees the God-man appear at the periphery. And every eye begins to turn. And this holy hush begins to pass through heaven. And the energy and anticipation of heaven now turns as Jesus processes, welcomed by his Father, to the throne at the center of heaven. And he sits down on heaven's throne, his work complete, exalted, on the seat of honor of all the universe, as, as heaven crowns Jesus Lord of all and gives him many diadems and praises. So as we come to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, and in particular verses 3 to 6, let's keep this heavenly coronation in mind. There are some challenging concepts in Hebrews' first chapter and throughout Hebrews. And I think we'll be helped with those challenges if we remember the setting. And I want to show you the setting in the text itself. Don't take my word for it. I'll show you that in the text itself with the location, number one, 
the timing, number one, location, number two, and then we'll spend most of our time on the significance of this moment, the significance of Jesus being coronated king of the universe. So let me pray for our time. Father, do show us now in truth and move our hearts aright with this crowning of your son as Lord of all the universe. Help us with the concepts on the surface and beneath the surface here in Hebrews 1 to know what you want to communicate to us through this letter and these verses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, the timing. I'm going to show you the timing. There is a particular when that anchors this chapter. And that when is on the other side of Jesus' ascension. So jump down to verse 6, which says, When God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When? It's a particular time. And that might sound like the incarnation. God brings him into the world. Isn't that when God brought Jesus at Christmas in Bethlehem? Or brings him into the world. That might be the second coming. When is this bringing into the world? What we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 5, is a clarification on that timing. So chapter 2, verse 5, we'll jump ahead. I'll read it for you. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. You might say, of which we're speaking? Where are we speaking about it? And the answer is chapter 1. I've been speaking about it since the beginning. I'm talking about the world to come. That means... This world to come is the world to come for us, believers. It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, according to Hebrews 12. It's the heaven into which Jesus ascended to reign until his return. So that's the timing. The timing is after he ascended, when he returned to heaven. But an even clearer indicator of the time is at the end of verse 3. Look there. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Right? So after he does his work, after he accomplishes his sacrificial work at the cross and his rising again and his ascending, Jesus sat down on heaven's throne for the great coronation that is the opening scene of Hebrews 1. So that's the timing. How about the location? We've already seen it. Let's make, it. let's make the location clear. We have a particular where that anchors this chapter, and that is heaven. At the end of verse 3, again, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That is, in heaven, in the place of honor, with God himself. So, as we've already seen in verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That world to come, according to chapter 2, verse 5, is heaven. Note this carefully. This is really important. Kind of point of application of living in the 21st century. Heaven is a superior location than earth for a king. Not inferior. I was just reading this week a text somewhere in the New Testament sent me to Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, 1, where God says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. I rest my feet 
on earth. I sit in heaven. Heaven is more real, more significant. Heaven is superior to earth rather than what we have been indoctrinated in in the modern world, that what we can see and touch and feel and taste, that's the superior thing. That's the real, that's the most real thing. Heaven is secondary. Heaven's derivative. Heaven's cloudy. Hebrews thinks the opposite. There's the whole Bible. Heaven is a superior place for a king and a superior place, as we'll see, for a priest. Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 2. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in a true tent. Not the secondary tent. The true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So earthly thrones are made by men and limited by men. And the heavenly throne is not made by human hands or limited by human hands. But practically, maybe you've had this question as a father. I remember it two distinct times as a dad. Most recently, Mercy asked me this question. It was adorable. Daddy, where is Jesus? When will I get to see Jesus? I've never seen him. When will I see him? Maybe your children have asked that. We keep talking, we talk about Jesus all the time. We're talking in very concrete ways. Sure sounds like this guy's human. And uh, we keep talking about him like he's real and in our lives, hopefully. And our children wonder, where is he? And maybe you would answer something like this. Sweetie or buddy. Jesus is seated in power as king and Lord of all the universe at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus is real. God and human, risen, glorified, and reigning over all, waiting for his enemies in his perfect timing to be put under his feet. Jesus, sweetie, is as real as I am and more. He's as real as mommy is, and even more. He's more real, you might say, because he rose to new life in a glorious body, which we too will one day have when our seeing him with our hearts by faith turns to seeing him face to face with our eyes. Last Sunday, Jonathan talked about Jesus in your heart's face. This is Jesus in your heart's face. Heaven is no less real than earth, but more real and superior. Our material world in all its glories, and it is glorious, is derivative, not ultimate, but secondary. So we have a timing and we have a location, and it's a better location, not an inferior one. And now number three, the significance. What's the significance of this great coronation? After the ascension, in heaven, the coronation of Jesus Christ. And this is where we'll linger. This is where we spend most of our time here on number three, on the significance and what it means for us. To do so, I want to ask three questions. I think these are the, as far as I can tell, 
for my eyes, the three hardest questions of these few verses. And I think if we address these questions, that'll get at the significance of the coronation for us. So number one, why angels? Where did they come from? Why are we talking about angels? Angels, number one. Number two, how do these Old Testament quotations work? Is that what these texts are really about? How do they work? Number three, what is the name he has inherited? What name? So we'll start with verse four, come to five and six, and come back to verse four at the end. So number one, why angels? Verse four links Jesus' coronation in heaven with his having become superior to angels. And you might say, angels? <laughs> he's, he's God. Hasn't he always been superior to angels? Wasn't the eternal Son of God always superior? Spectacular as angels may be. And I grant, they're spectacular, but they're created beings. Isn't Jesus obviously superior to angels? The answer is yes. As God, the Son has always been superior to angels. But, this is significant, not as man. There is an order of being, you see. God and God alone is at the top. And there is an infinite chasm between him and all created reality. And then you have angels as the most impressive creative beings by order of creation. Then you have humanity. And then we have animals. Psalm 8 talks about this, celebrates that God made humanity a little lower than the angels. It's amazing. God's so gracious. You made humanity just a little lower than the angels. And you crowned him. There's, there's coronation language. Crowned him with glory and honor and gave him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So humans, hear this. I, I wish we did not need to rehearse this. Humans are superior to animals. Sadly, many humans today do not own this reality very well. Humans are superior to animals. There are biblical texts for that if you need to reinforce it in your soul. Like Psalm 8, Genesis 1. And angels, by the order of creation, are superior to humans. However, God the Son became human. And thus, he became a little lower than the angels. And now he has surpassed the angels as human. As God, he has always been superior to the angels. But now, by virtue of his life and sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection, Jesus as man has become superior to angels. In other words, there is now a man better than the angels in the order of new creation. And we go with him. And so we have our first better than comparison here in Hebrews with verse four. And Pastor Jonathan talked about this last week. The theme we're gonna see in Hebrews again and again, Jesus is better. He's better than the angels, He's better than Moses, better than Joshua, 
better than Aaron or Levi or any other priest, better than the first covenant and its places and its priests and its sacrifices. Jesus makes better promises than the ones that came before. He gives us a better covenant and a better hope and a better country. And he is a better possession than all other possessions. So brothers and sisters, this is a very good thing to rehearse, a very practical thing to rehearse in your life. And as we go through this Hebrew series, for your, make it explicit for your soul. It's good to remember again and again, whatever the comparison, Jesus is better. He's better than comfort and ease. He's better than money and possessions, better than status and fame, better than marriage and family, better than work and leisure, better than sports and entertainment, better than all food and drink. In Acts 20, verse 35, Paul says to remember the words of Jesus. And this is, this is one of the things it's worth remembering. Don't, don't make this implicit. Make it explicit. Remember, rehearse it that he is better. And Hebrews is going to have us rehearsing it over and over again in 2023. So why angels? <clears throat> For one, angels are there at the coronation. If we're doing coronation of Jesus, I mean, who's involved there? Well, Jesus is involved, the Father's involved, the angels are involved. The angels are there, they're at the scene. That's part of the coronation. But also, angels serve as a standard of comparison to show the Son's progress. From incarnation, where he becomes lower than the angels as human, to now having accomplished his work, being superior to the angels on the very throne of heaven. So the point of Hebrews 1, the point of bringing angels into Hebrews 1 is not that his original audiences, audience were, were tempted to worship angels. The point is the angels worship Jesus. Don't leave Jesus behind. Don't stop worshiping Jesus. The angels worship Jesus. So his original audience, they clearly thought highly of the Jewish scriptures. They thought highly of angels. And he says, you love the Jewish scriptures. You think highly of angels. The angels worship Jesus. And you too, audience, original audience, 21st century audience, worship Jesus. And it might be worth mentioning here how worship keeps our souls from drifting. That's a concern with Hebrews' first audience. That's a concern we want to apply to ourselves as we work through Hebrews. This danger of drifting this move toward apostasy and worship here with the body of Christ on Sunday mornings and practices of worship in our families and individually. Worship is so stabilizing for the soul. If you begin to minimize worship and push worship to the periphery of your life, it is very likely, if not certain, that you will drift. How much deconstruction now comes from leniency on worship in the past? Second question, how do these Old Testament quotations work? This is the hardest part of the passage. This is one of the hardest parts of Hebrews for today. It's one reason that 
We love quoting verses out of context from Hebrews. There's so much good stuff in Hebrews. Yeah, quote that, quote that, quote that. But working through the thing from beginning to end is hard. There's some really hard parts of this book. And maybe the hardest part is how Hebrews uses the Old Testament. Now, what Hebrews is doing in verses 5 to 6, I think is plain enough. What he's doing is he's showing Jesus' superiority to the angels. So he says 4 in verse 5. is going to explain verse, and explain verse 4. 4, and then he says, and again, to lead the next quotation. He says, and again. So he's making this argument, Jesus is better than the angels. But how these quotations work has made many people, if not all modern readers, scratch their head. Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 52, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Hebrews is a master at this. Hebrews is a master class on how to use the Old Testament. If you want to have one place to focus on how to read, use, apply the Old Testament, Hebrews is the master class for us. And Hebrews doesn't leave the present moment and go back and then explain the ancient meaning of the text and leave it there. Hebrews goes back and he brings that text into the present to show his readers the fullness of the meaning and the application and the significance now in Jesus. Hebrews again and again emphasizes that God's word is alive. He's going to say, this is one of those verses we love to do out of context. The word of God is living and active. Again and again, Hebrews talks in the present term. God says, God says, he is speaking. When we read his words in the Bible, we're not just reading what was said in the past. We read what he is saying right now to us by his Holy Spirit through his word. So let me summarize how Hebrews uses these three Old Testament quotations. And I have to keep it brief. And then you can open up this week, this afternoon, to the larger contexts and read these for yourselves and learn what Hebrews is doing. This is one thing we want to do this year in 2023, learn how to handle the Old Testament like Hebrews does. First, look at the middle quotation. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is from a massively important chapter in the Old Testament. Not every chapter is written equally. There are certain ones that rise to the level of interpretive keys or high points of redemptive history. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a sneaky one for us because we're not really familiar with monarchs. Like we haven't had, England hasn't had a coronation in 70 years. We're across the pond. We rebelled from that. We're not really familiar with monarch stuff. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is critical in monarch terms. God makes an eternal royal covenant with King David. And unlike King Saul, who was before David, who had no dynasty, no son of Saul ever sat on the throne, 
David, God promises, will have a son on the throne and a son after him and another son after him. A dynasty that, in fact, will never end. Second Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. I'll pick up 13 before we get to 14. This is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I'm not talking about child rearing. Raising him up to the throne. I'll crown him. I'll put him on the throne. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. In other words, David, your son will be Israel's king like you. And Israel's king was God's son, lowercase s. Right? Just, just forget about the capital S for a minute. God's son, lowercase s, on the throne of his chosen people. There's a sense in which God rules the nation through his human son, king. And God's promise here in 2 Samuel 7 anticipates the coronation to come after David. See, it's a coronation text. At that coronation, when David's son is crowned, when he's raised up to the throne, he too, like David before him, will be son, will be God's son. And that will be declared when he's crowned king. So in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, David, God promises to crown David's son and son and sons in a kingly line that will endure until one king sits on the throne forever. And that leads to the first quote in verse 5. So back up now to the first quote in Hebrews 1. That's from Psalm 2. And surprise, Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's about the king on the throne in Israel. And it's written for the day on which the king is crowned king of Israel. One in David's line, coming to the throne like their father David. In verses 1 to 2 of Psalm 2, we're told that the enemies are raging and conspiring against God and his anointed, anointed the Messiah in Hebrew, the Christ in Greek, the, the king on the throne. But his, as the enemies conspire, David, or the king, rehearses God's decree, his coronation decree. This happened on the coronation day. You are my son. Today, on the coronation, today, I have become your father. So on the surface, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 are about human kings. David and his dynasty, one son after the next, declared at his coronation to be God's son, his specially chosen and anointed human king of God's people. But remember our timing and our location. We're not in Jerusalem a thousand years before Jesus in Hebrews 1. Our setting is heaven after Christ's ascension. 
And so what Hebrews, do, Hebrews does is draws forward these coronation declarations for David's line to the climactic coronation of David's promised offspring, who is not just a Christ, a son, an anointed one, but the Christ, the son, the anointed one anticipated all along by one earthly king after another. So verse 5 is about Jesus and God applying the promises and the pageantry of Israel's ancient coronation declaration to him as the great climactic crowning of the king of kings. What about verse 6? Verse 6 brings in the angels. And the quote there is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses, verse 43. Let all God's angels worship him. Now, in some ways, this quotation is easier in its application to Hebrews 1. And it's more difficult in its Old Testament context. So, let me briefly give you my explanation for Deuteronomy 32. You're talking about, talk about master class? Uh, Hebrew, I, I want you to know Hebrews has a very good reason for citing Deuteronomy 32. Let me, let me provide that for you. It's a dense paragraph. I don't know if I've ever tried to preach a more dense paragraph. Okay? Just, just give me two minutes. All right? Two minutes. I'll explain Deuteronomy 32. It's okay if you don't fully understand it, but I want you to know it's here for a reason. And you can see why he's citing it for, to make his case in chapter 1. So Deuteronomy 32 is a song of Moses at the end of his life. He does this song for the people, then he gives a final blessing, and then Moses dies. From verse 1 to verse 20, Moses is the speaker. Talks about God in the third person. Then in verses 20 to 27, God speaks. Moses introduces God speaking, and God speaks through Moses as he does with prophets. You're familiar with this from reading other places in the text. So as verses 20 to 27, God speaks. Then Moses speaks again in verses 28 to 33. Then it gets interesting. Then a third speaker seems to emerge in verses 34 to 42. And this third speaker speaks of himself both as heaven's agent and also, shockingly, in verse 39, this agent says, see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. And then there's a new voice, which Hebrews takes to be the voice of God, that enters in verse 43, after the agent. And he speaks about the agent. So this is God himself speaking about the agent, saying, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all angels. That's the quotation in Hebrews 1. Let all God's angels worship him. It sounds like a coronation. He's king. Worship the king. 
So Hebrews brings verse 43 to the enthronement of Christ. Let all God's angels worship him. So let's bring it now back to our coronation scene now in Hebrews 1. Jesus, who was lower than the angels with respect to his humanity, now has ascended to heaven and with his father's welcome has taken his seat on the throne. And the father crowns his son, Lord of all. And we hear the ancient coronation decree for David's line. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then he turns and he declares to the host of heaven, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And then let all God's angels worship him. And if the angels worship him, how much more might we? Which is why we're gathered here. It's why we gather here together on Sunday mornings to worship him together, as Jonathan said in the welcome. All right, finally then about the name. What is the more excellent name? Verse 4 again. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If you only have these few verses in front of you, it sure looks like the name is Son. He's introduced in verse 2 as Son, and he's Son again in the coronation quotes in verse 5. And we're going to see next week, verses 7 to 13, goes back and forth comparing Son, Angel, Son, Angel, Son. Most readers take the name here to be Son. And that very well may be the case. Others, more, more minority voice, has said, well, the name he inherits must not be son. You don't inherit son, you inherit the name. So is this God's old covenant name, Yahweh, that he inherits? Recently I read a, an essay by one of Professor Crutchmer's favorites, John Webster, British, so it goes in with this whole coronation theme. And he says this about Hebrews 1.4, which got me thinking. It's, it's not conclusive, but he says this. He says, perhaps there is a deliberate withholding of the name. Pageantry? What is the name everywhere else in the New Testament? I think of Acts. And the feverish attention to the name, the name, the name, the name, the name, the name in Acts, chapters 2 to 5. And then again in Acts 10 to 11 and throughout the book of Acts. And what is the name when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 that there is a name that is above every name? And that's Acts, it's Paul. What if we take a step back in Hebrews? From this immediate context in Hebrews 1, and we ask, what name does Hebrews use for the next 12 chapters, and in particular, all his key passages? Like chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. 
Chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 12, 1 and 2. Chapter 13, 8. And then the doxology at the very end, 13, 20 to 21, and uses it twice. Answer, the name Jesus. Just this morning I was reading Acts 9, and Paul asks on the Damascus Road, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. That's how he introduces himself to Paul. And if Hebrews adds pageantry to heaven's coronation by deliberately withholding the name for a bit, then when does the name first appear? Chapter 2, verse 9. One, chapters 1 and 2 all go together. This is one opening. And it appears dramatically in chapter 2, verse 9. So Hebrews says, at present, it's in this fallen world with its curse and sin, and in these last days, we do not yet see everything in subjection to humanity, as Psalm 8 says, as God designed it from the beginning. But, Hebrews says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned is your coronation, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. At the end of the day, the issue is not exactly what Hebrews means by the name, or even if he has an exact name in mind. Maybe he means all that's encompassed in this person Son, Christ, Jesus. But the main point is that this Jesus, this Son, is clearly superior to the angels. So as we close, I just want to enjoy for a moment this moment when he sat down. Right, this is where we finish. And the seat on which he sat, or what the seat became when he sat on it. First, Jesus sat down as the long-promised greater son of David, now on heaven's throne, not Jerusalem's fickle throne, on heaven's throne, and now shown to be even greater than anticipated, not only as David's heir, but as his Lord. He is exalted to the universe's seat of honor. That's the first one. It's a seat of honor on which he sat to be served, to be praised, to be worshiped by men and angels. Also, second here, he sat down to rule over all as sovereign and as judge with all authority already his, as he says in Matthew 28. From his throne, he speaks still. He sits on his throne to teach his church, through his apostles, through faithful pastors and preachers, as well as rule the nations. And this will be his judgment seat. That's the second one, judgment seat, on which he sits to deliberate and judge. Seat of honor, judgment seat. Finally, he sat down with his atoning, his purifying work complete. Now he sits in joyful, satisfied repose, anointed with the oil of gladness. 
And as we saw in Leviticus this past fall, the old covenant high priest stood in God's presence when he entered once a year. But Jesus sits in the presence of God. And in doing so, he makes heaven's throne a mercy seat. Seat of honor, judgment seat, mercy seat. So brothers and sisters, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, which is what we do at this table. At this table, we draw near to the throne to sit and eat with the one who made purification for our sins. And as we eat, we join with the angels and worship him.